Welcome. Thanks again for joining us to the Yoga and Body Image Coalition podcast. Our guest today is Mel- Melanie Klein, MA. She's a writer, speaker, and associate faculty member at Santa Monica College. She teaches sociology and women's studies. She's a contributing author in uh, the 21st Century Yoga Culture, Politics, and Practice book and is featured in Conversations with Modern Yogis as well. She's the co-editor of Yoga and Body Image, 25 Personal Stories About Beauty, Bravery, and Loving Your Body, and co-founder of the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. Thanks so much for joining me, Melanie. Thank you, Beth. Nice to talk to you today. It is, it is. Um, When you and I first connected our work, we were just kind of shocked at how much our work overlaps and how much we both really uh, find yoga and feminism to really feed each other, fuel each other, complement each other. you want to, how did that happen for you? Um, well, first I want to acknowledge uh, just finding you before you get into that. Um, <laughs> I think, I'm trying to think, um, I was having this conversation with Anna recently, and Anna, uh, in a, an interview recently with Diane Bondi, had also mentioned back when we first started going into the yoga blogosphere, mm-hmm. it was a lot smaller than it is now. Yeah. Um, my first piece at Elephant Journal, which was sort of my platform into the yoga community, mm-hmm. into things I've been doing academically for a long time, um, you know, gave me the opportunity to find other people. And I remember, I don't know if you even remember, but I remember finding you on some website or through Elephant and, and sending a brief email. And then uh, we kind of connected. And it wasn't until I think the coalition came together mm-hmm. that we we reconnected. But I just wanted to acknowledge sort of the place of social media um, and the internet and allowing you know, the sort of social justice component of the yoga community to grow, which was very, very, very small mm-hmm. uh, four or five years ago. And that now. Almost backlash against yep. that four or five years ago. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that because that, I think, is very, very, very cool. Absolutely. Um, in, t- <laughs> in terms of uh, feminism, um, well, I came to feminism officially, if you will, back in 1994 when I took my first um, sociology of women's class. And I remember I had taken some time off uh, of school uh, to go live in Hawaii. I lived in San Diego. I did a few things. And I had had a background uh, with a very uh, mentally and emotionally abusive boyfriend that I had for many, many years, Um, a history of disordered eating and uh, negative body image that was sort of a result of uh, the women in my family and, and their image of themselves and their own projections onto me. So... There had been, you know, all of these experiences that had really had an impact on my self-esteem and kind of uh, is what led me to try to find myself, which is why I dropped out of school and traveled. And so when I finally was ready to come back to school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was looking at the community college catalog and I saw sociology of women and I had never heard of sociology at that point, Um, but it seemed really intriguing. And uh, I walked into this classroom And at the time, the woman who later became my mentor was 65. She was a self-identified Marxist feminist um, who had been very active in the second wave of feminism, civil rights movement, etc. And uh, she blew me away. She really blew me away on every level. And I remember leaving class every day feeling like I had x-ray vision. All of these things that, you know, were surrounding me in the culture um, took on new meaning and I saw them in a new way. And that was really exciting for me. Um, it was inspiring. And at the same time, as uh, Gloria Steinem has said, you know, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. So that <laughs> happened as well. Um, but it was liberating, essentially, what was the feeling that 
you know, the whole personal is political, um, realizing that the experiences I had had were not individual and were not a result or, or of any sort of inadequacy on my part per se, but rather that these were systemic issues that women uh, have been facing. And so that was really liberating. And I really began to have the ability to critically analyze my surroundings and dismantle experiences I had taken for granted. And um, about two years later is when I, when I found yoga. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. It's so funny to me listening to this story because it, it, um, I've used some of the exact same words to describe <laughs> my uh, feminist awakening in college as well. <laughs> um, I went to college as a um, very uh, overprotected, um, uh, perfectionist kind of uh, middle-class white uh, female who just did everything to please everybody else and didn't really have a strong sense of self of my own. And I went into my very first college class with a, a an honors professor who was the resident feminist Marxist in the economics department. <laughs> he uh-huh. wore he wore snakeskin cowboy boots and and tight leather pants, and the man rocked my world. I mean, he just he taught classes on feminization and uh, the feminization of poverty, and uh, really taught me how to analyze from a feminist perspective. And then from there, I went into um, uh, a class on my first actual women's studies class was a 400 level uh, honors uh, um, decolonizing feminisms class. So my my venue in outside of, of my mentors class was uh, through Chandra Mohanty and some of the other, you know, at the time it was also during the Anita Hill trials that were being televised during the whole thing, you know, it, it, it was just it was such a, a, a empowering and awakening uh, time, and it's been a ride ever since. <laughs> you know, I love that you uh, bring that up because it obviously feeds a couple other things I want to add, and we were looking to obviously have more of a conversation right, today. yeah. Opposed to an official interview, if you will, because we do have so many overlaps, and I think it's very telling um, of sort of being able to have this perspective and, you know, having the practice. But um, one of the things that, you know, kind of came up for me is, is you were talking about being a, you know, middle class white female and uh, for me also being a white heterosexual female, but coming from a working class background where my, I went to a private school, I went to private school my whole life Mm. because the other thing is when I moved here, I couldn't speak English. I moved here from another country. I moved here from Germany. Um, English was my second language. And when I went into school, uh, right around this time in the late 70s, uh, they were busing, and so my father didn't mm. want me being bused um, in a system in which I couldn't even speak English yet. So they decided, well, let's send her to private school for a year or two. She can learn how to speak the language, and then we'll transfer her out. But he uh, loved, they were so happy with the education I was getting that um, they continued uh, to send me there by um, never having a new car their entire life. My mm. parents never drove a new car. Uh, my dad had to supplement his income in a variety of ways. And so it, I remember it was always a weird experience for me um, being in private school. Um, and I would say K through six, uh, that private school had a lot of other working class kids. Private school, I think, was more affordable at that time. <laughs> but when I went to high school, I went to uh, a school where there were a lot of um, the children of celebrities uh, and directors in L.A., and I remember uh, the class issue was so glaring for me as well and feeling kind of stuck in between two worlds, um, going to this uh, private school where kids were getting, you know, BMWs for their 16th birthday and 
I started working at Chuck E. Cheese at 15 to buy a beater. So I want to mention how, you know, a lot of people have this misconception that feminism is just about, um, you know, women's issues. But, you know, really, if you are a contemporary feminist, we're using that lens of intersectionality. And I was very fortunate that from the moment I walked into her classroom, Pat Allen, who I'm still friends with today, and she's now, um, you know, in her 80s, um, that I was immediately introduced to at the time we were reading this bridge called my back, mm-hmm. um, which was only a few years old at that time. And, you know, we were reading, I remember we read Zora Neale Hurston and Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks. And so I feel very fortunate from the very beginning, um, I was taught to make connections mm-hmm. so that it wasn't just about me as a woman, but there was a recognition simultaneously of my privilege as well as having the experience of, you know, sexism and classism. And so I think that when we're actually looking at these things, um, you know, in all of its dimensions, that's where a lot of it is for me where it connects to yoga. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, right, even what you were describing, it's about um, it's about raising consciousness, it's about having awareness. Um, and that's for me, you know, why I think when I came into the yoga practice, um, immediately the connection seemed so obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Because I had, like you, I had a background where luckily the first people who introduced me to feminist theory and the movement um, and the praxis w- was not about, you know, taking this really one-dimensional look at just sex and gender, but right. looking at the full spectrum of human experience and diversity. Yeah, I mean, my first, as I said, my first women's studies class was through a, a, a decolonizing lens, um, okay. and that shaped sort of everything else I did. And then uh, many years later in my uh, doctoral program, when I finally realized that I was a lesbian, <laughs> <laughs> took me way too many years to figure that out. Um, I came out at a time when um, the local community in Syracuse, New York, was having a lot of uh, discussions, conflicts, tensions around transgender rights um, within the otherwise you know, a, a, a split that has happened in many other uh, places at that historical moment um, in the U.S. between the more sort of mainstream lesbian and gays movements in the in the area and then the more uh, sort of gender queer uh, transgender kinds of conversations and since most of my community in my circle was on the transgender uh, queer gender queer side like my entry into the LGBT queer community was through that lens as well and so there was this sort of it's almost as though um, there's this uh, empowering and uh, this this consciousness raising and empowerment at the same time that there's always inquiry there's always um, reflections on um, sort of the power dynamics of the conversation um, um, the notion of pa- partial truths and being open to to, um, to me that that um, for both for both my feminism and my yoga the um, The consciousness and empowerment also came with an awareness that um, the dismantling of what what the dominant paradigms are had to happen at the same time. And for me, um, teaching women's studies for a really long time, I started to notice that I felt like my students were getting really strongly empowered from a feminist intellectual political point of view, but hadn't yet fully integrated that into their sense of self. And for me, that's where yoga came in, um, because that's how I was able to begin to do it. <clears throat> yeah, no, I love that you, you mentioned that, because, I mean, obviously, like, where, how, where are these things coming together? And I, in a lot of what I've written is that, 
you know, um, feminism and the sociological imagination, because I have to admit, I've never taken a women's studies class in my life. Mm -hmm. First time I took women's studies is when I started teaching women's studies. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, I was a trained sociologist with an emphasis on gender. So, I mean, Mm you're almost the same thing, but I just had to have stuff with them. I never took women's studies. I took all gender sociology courses. So um, that feminist consciousness and, um, you know, the intersectionality. Yep. And the sociological imagination gave me this really wonderful way to deconstruct, dismantle, um, you know, my reality and the systems and powers and et cetera. Um, and then when I walked into the, to the yoga classroom, I mean, it didn't happen right away. I, I started practicing Kundalini yoga actually the first year. Um, there was not a lot of yoga offerings or choices, uh, mm-hmm. even in Los Angeles at the time. It was 1996, so two years after I had first become a sociologist and you know, been introduced to feminist consciousness. And so I practiced Kundalini for the first year. My sister had just literally randomly, I, I still to this day haven't asked her why, but she said, hey, let's take a yoga class. And um, she signed us up for uh, community extension classes at the another local community college. So, you know, um, in that case, it's not a full semester. You're, you're taking classes for maybe eight weeks, one night a week. And we went to this literally dumpy old um, <laughs> warehouse on the side of, railroad tracks and it was kind of like a fitness center and um we started you know the practice and I remember we thought it was so goofy and so funny um (laughs) because we were doing you know the sat noms and the breath of fire and all of these things and yet we would giggle and laugh and I think part of it was an emotional release as well in Mm -hmm. in doing the practice but we didn't identify it as such um and we kept going back though we kept signing up and we kept signing up and um a year afterwards uh you know going for eight-week segments one night a week just wasn't enough, so I was trying looking around, and I remember my friend was like, well, hey, there's, you know, there's some yoga where I'm living in Santa Monica. I, I wasn't in Santa Monica at the time. I was 20 minutes north, and so I said, what kind of yoga, right? So now that I started Kundalini, I thought that was the only kind of yoga that was available, and she's like, power yoga, and I was like, oh, God, power yoga? What's that? What is that? That sounds so ridiculous, and, um, but I was desperate, so I went, and I I took uh, my first class with Brian Kest, who since then become a very good friend and mentor, and I, I work with him as well on, on a variety of things. But at the time, the first time I met him, he was, gosh, maybe only 28 or 30 at the time. He's about to turn 50 in two weeks. And um, I remember, going, this is yoga. I was so physically drained. I had never moved my body in that way. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really overwhelming experience. The breathing, uh, everything was so intense, but... What really hooked me was his rhetoric, uh, the rhetoric that has actually remained the same for 30 years for him, which was about focusing on the breath, not for the breath itself, but having the breath be a way to create awareness, right? Mm-hmm. And a barometer for when you need to take breaks and coming into your body. And so for me, that is where the connection really happened mm-hmm. was um, I always say that, you know, I had gotten my intellectual mm-hmm. understanding of a variety of issues through academia, but then it was coming into the practice. And yeah. specifically, I, I have to say now, specific to Brian's style of teaching, which is so, uh, it's misleading what it's called power yoga. And I actually, uh, Yoga International is um, publishing an interview I did with him recently on the misconceptions about power yoga. Mm-hmm. He realized it's just turned into a stereotype that he never intended. Um it was never about the physical practice, which is funny because it's mm-hmm. such a physical practice. 
Um, but it is, as you said, a training for life. Uh, do you take breaks? Do you right. listen? Are you feeding the ego? Mm-hmm. And so his rhetoric was all about not competing, not comparing, mm-hmm. not looking at others during the class. Like he used to back in the day, like he'd be on your shit. If you were even <laughs> looking around, he'd be like, what are you looking at? Do you need a people magazine? Right. You know, like, why are your eyes like satellite dishes? And that was amazing. Like having a place where the rhetoric that I was hearing was actually what I had learned. Mm. Media studies, sociology. And I used to tell him, dude, you're a sociologist. You don't even know it. And here's this like 10th grade dropout. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, you're like a sociologist. And, um, and it was having that space and having the rhetoric and having the focus being on the breath that over, you know, several years, I really, it was the first time in my life since childhood that I was able to get into my body, reconnect, and um, understand what I had intellectualized on a physical level, have it be in my body, have it be part of my cellular consciousness, and live it as opposed to talk about it or think about it. And that was really important for the full integration uh, of, of all of that. Yeah, I think that's one of the really important pieces that yoga brings to um to feminist empowerment. And I don't think that yoga is a, you know, silver bullet for everybody, but it certainly raised the questions and gave me some practices and techniques to address some of what I was seeing in students and also what I saw in myself. Um, obviously not every student, but, but women's studies gave me a language for something that I didn't know how to express before, right? There were all these aha moments and there were all these ways of then beginning to dismantle um, a system and see how one can uh, um, disrupt it. But, but it also easily became a tool of internal critique or... Um, um, using it, it's not it's it's easy actually to use feminism to beat yourself up uh, in terms of like I'm not being a good feminist or you know since feminism is about walking the talk um, you know constantly interrogating what you're doing but if that that voice echoes the cultural self judgment and internalized oppression that you've learned then it doesn't help you unlearn it as powerfully as it could if you began to do that self reflection with a compassion and a kindness at sort of the cellular and conscious and embodied level that you were just talking about and i think that's what yoga brings in in a really powerful way and i think uh you know you you said something really important about you know uh walking the talk but then you know going oh i'm not being a good feminist or i'm not you know like living it and I think uh, I remember having that feeling when I first came to feminism. I remember I cut off all my hair. I stopped wearing um, makeup. Not that I've ever worn a lot, except for when I was goth, that I wore a lot. But <laughs> other than that, I, you know, but just not even wearing eyeliner, for example, and um, feeling like I couldn't um, or I shouldn't, and that I had to look and talk a certain way. Um, and you know, a lot of when Amy Richards and Jennifer Baumgartner came onto the scene and, and really were speaking, you know, to third wave feminists about, you know, how feminism is very expansive that helped, but also the self practice, uh, self, um, the self care component that you mm-hmm. just mentioned is, you know, that we're all a works in progress and that we're all, um, you know, slowly evolving and developing. And then of course, you know, be critical and be conscious and, you know, check in with yourself, um, you know, have that sense of personal reflection and responsibility, but also, you know, not have the expectation that we're going to be doing everything perfectly all the time, mm-hmm. but at the same time, not, you know, saying, well, my intention was, because sometimes people will say, well, that was my intention. And somehow the intention 
is supposed to let them off the hook for not doing the work. It's, it's finding that middle ground. Yep. It's finding the balance between those two things, between like, I'm just going to leave it up to the universe, uh, you know, and I've, I've done a talk about what's problematic with that. And then the difference between I'm going to scrutinize every single thing and, you know, and just, and, and finding balance. I mean, that, that's what yoga is about as well, is finding that balance, finding, you know, that authenticity in who you are and your own voice um, and, and not having it all be the same. I mean, I find that, a lot of times when I was younger, not necessarily now, but definitely when I was younger, my perception was that <clears throat> there was a certain sense of all feminists were the same in terms of how they presented themselves, uh, how they spoke, etc. And then simultaneously, you know, that all yogis are the same. It's all like, I'm going to eat my kale and leave it up to the universe. And I was like, well, aren't both of these things supposed to be about authenticity and choice and freedom and finding exactly who you are? Um, so I feel very fortunate. I think that my yoga practice benefited from having that background and that the intellectual component benefited from having a practice. I, I don't know what either one would look like had they not happened together, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, that's a big thing for me. I don't, I, I mean, I, when I talk about yoga, it's hard for me not to talk about, I have to talk about this intellectual background because I don't necessarily know like what I'm saying that. I don't know if yoga would give these same um, results. I mean, I don't know what other word to use for someone who doesn't necessarily have this background. Mm -hmm. It could potentially be different. Or, I mean, maybe they would get something similar. But, I, again, I'm all also very careful not to, like you said, it's not a silver bullet. It's not some, you know, kind of blanket treatment. It's, it's really about if you are practicing and you have that consciousness, it can lead you to a variety of places that might be different than my experience or yours. Uh, but again, it's coming, it's finding that authenticity. You know, I just yeah. feel fortunate that I had them together. Me it too. Sense to be together. <laughs> me too, because for me, they're both ways of being in the world. And bringing them together offers, I think, for me anyway, a more holistic way of being in the world. And even if it's, if yoga isn't a silver bullet, which I don't believe it is, it raises some insights and some questions that I think are so important for feminists and yogis, uh, any kind of social change agents about sustainability. You know, how are you going to be in this for the long haul? You don't have to pick every single battle. Um, and you don't, you have to constantly, I think, be doing your inner work, but you do it with some compassion and you, you think about sort of um, how how do I make choices that will allow me to continue to do this work in a in a sustainable and life giving way in my community? Oh, I, I I agree. I mean, I was thinking that actually when you just started talking right now about how <clears throat> you know that it, when I was younger I'd want to do everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like militant as. F. Okay, I don't know if I should be cursing during the podcast. Normally I would. I would be throwing the F-bomb right now. But I was so militant. I wanted to do everything. And it was exhausting and mm -hmm. overwhelming. And I, mm -hmm. you know, there was no self-care element. And at the same time, you know, um, with, with yoga, right, you were talking about the being in terms of social justice. And we're seeing much more of that in the yoga community now in the last, I'd say, year, really, I would mm -hmm. say, that I see more of it. Um, is that it makes sense to me that if we're going to be a, a conscious community, and I write about this a lot, you know, we're conscious, we are, we're building awareness, we're, you know, creating connection, that it makes sense, well, then how can you not have uh, discussions about sexism and racism right. and, and, you know, uh, homophobia and all of these different things, classism and size and ages, all of the isms, I mean, it, it always made sense to me that, well, if we're a conscious community and we're raising awareness, well, 
that is a component of our being and our understanding of the world, you know? So I'm really happy that that change is starting to happen, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and and just on the larger level, what's so fascinating just as a whole is, you know, with all this talk about yoga body image lately, um, you know, with the book coming out and plans for potential second volume and the coalition and, you know, all of the community allies and other people doing this work is we talk so much about how, uh, yoga perpetuates, uh, yoga culture perpetuates a lot of the toxic, you know, one dimensional imagery of the larger culture. And then there's talk about how the yoga practice can help us to create a more healthy body image. But it just occurred to me, we don't even talk about the fact that when it comes to the body, that yes, the body in the larger culture, we focus on in terms of, are we attracted by mainstream standards and how does it affect our body image? But there's less talk about the fact that, you know, the body in mainstream culture is, is primarily an object, right? right? But that really most of us are uber intellectual, right? Mm. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. we walk around, I remember being in massage school and talking about, we're kind of like a brain on a stick. We just walk around the world, especially with a media culture mm-hmm. with so many people on screens and video games and their iPhones that, you know, that's the other part is moving beyond simply having this body that's objectified and then trying to navigate how do I measure according to that standard? But just coming back into the body fully. Yes. Right? You know, and 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 having all of those dimensions um, connected. That to me is so important. And that's why for me as a feminist, it was a, a great relief um, because I was doing all this intellectual work, um, but not fully living in my body uh, at all, you know. And now, like you said, I, I don't I don't pick every battle I you know I take care of myself I look at what kind of longevity am I going to have and is this really worth it like I will never ever engage in Twitter dialogue mm. that is negative I will never spend my time usually having a huge discussion in a, in a comment thread or something like that um, you know if I feel like there is a complete shutdown it's not my job anymore to try to <laughs> create the, the opening you know that I I'm sort of at a different place where I want to be bringing this information to people who are ready for this information, mm-hmm. um, you know, and kind of expanding the consciousness that way. Whereas before I was like, I want to take the hammer, smash the patriarchy, break the holes, you know, and I think that's part of, uh, you know, also being comfortable with the life process and the life force and where you are in that. I think yoga gave me that as well mm-hmm. and not feeling like I have to be doing the kind of work I was doing when I was 20 and, or acting the same way, and that's a beautiful thing because now, you know, moving into my 40s, um, you know, there's definitely there's changes that are going on, and and I love that I'm not resisting them. You know, I think yoga gave me that as well. So. Well, that is a beautiful place to end since we are out of time. Gosh, that went really fast. Yeah, we'll have to have part two. I was just thinking that. We'll have to have part two. Thank you again so much, Melanie Klein, for joining us today and for for found, helping to found the Yoga and Body Image Coalition, which is helping to spark such great conversations. Um, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Beth. Bye, everyone.